This is God's word. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is God's word. Let me pray. Father, please guide Uh, my tongue now by your spirit so that uh, these words would be edifying for us they would be convicting where is necessary and you would open up our eyes so that we may see wonderful things in your word today we ask in Jesus name amen Jesus finished the section that we went over last week by giving this statement to the hearers, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is in verse 24. Do not judge by outward appearance, by superficial judgments, but judge with a right or a just judgment. This is the theme of most of the people who have come to Jesus. They are coming to him with superficial judgments, surface level judgments that do not get to the core of who Jesus is and what he is saying. And this is what Jesus is addressing. And as we move on through verse 25, we see the same thing happening, the same superficial judgments about him. There's more conversation about the Christ going on here. And as you read through verse 25 to verse 27, we see that there is this confusion about uh, why Jesus is here speaking openly and the confusion is why are they not trying to kill him why are they not arresting him it's public knowledge at this point that they want Jesus dead and so the people say hang on isn't this the guy whom they seek to kill and he's here teaching openly in front of everyone and no one lays a hand on him So in verse 26, they get this idea 
that maybe he is the Christ. But I believe this is still a superficial judgment because in verse 27, that dies very quickly and straight away. It's like they say, oh, no, of course that can't be. We know this man. We know him. This, this can't be the Christ. Don't they say when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from? Now, this was simply a myth. This was uh, not in Scripture. This was just a Jewish myth that perhaps the Christ uh, will be so mysterious, no one will know where he comes from. We know it's just a myth because in the next uh, few verses that we'll get to next week, um, they talk about how, doesn't it say that the Christ should come from Bethlehem? And so there's all of these different views. And these people here just take one old wives tail and say, well, this surely can't be the Christ because he's supposed to have no origin. We shouldn't know where he he comes from. In this, we see the same misguided judgments of Jesus that he has warned them not to do. Do not judge by superficial appearances that are lazy judgments. They're going to be based off myths and all sorts of things. You must judge with a right judgment, with a just judgment. So Jesus picks up on their misguided judgments. And in verse 28, he says, and we should read this with a bit of irony, that Jesus is saying this with irony. In fact, the word proclaimed is the the same word of cry out. So Jesus is loudly crying out in verse 28. You know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Now, Jesus is not affirming their knowledge of him. I believe there is a sense of irony in what he's saying when he says, you know me. It's like, you know me? You really think you know me? I mean, you may know me with superficial judgments, but you really don't know me because I know that you don't know my father. If you knew my father, you would knew me. If you knew me, you would know my father. So he's saying, you don't actually know me. It's still superficial judgments. If you really knew me, you would know that I have not come of my own accord, but I have been sent by my father. And I know that you do not know him. And this is the key statement. This is something we should grab hold of as a bit of a theme here. They do not know the father who has sent the son. He is true. They are following a lie. They do not know the Father because they do not know Christ. They are not willing to come to Him. They are not willing to come to Jesus as God's Son. And the only way to know the Father is to come to the Son. So they clearly do not know Him. The way to know the God who created everything, the way to know their Father, this is the Jewish people, the way to know that the Father who created them who appointed them as a nation, the way to know him is to come to the Son. This is the theme. I mean, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, right? This time where they are commemorating all that God had had done for them through the time in the wilderness and looking forward to this future day. And Jesus is saying, you don't even know the God that you're celebrating. You don't know him. If you did, you would be coming to me as his chosen son. But you're not. It's still superficial judgments. We do see a glimmer of hope amongst the hearers. We read in verse 31, many uh, of the people believed in him and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man 
has done. And the implication there is no. In fact, in, in the Greek language, there are two ways that you can uh, put a no in front of something. And depending on which one you use, it implies either a yes answer or a no answer. So it's very clear. And here, the implication is no. So it's like they're saying, when the Christ appears, there's no way he could do more signs than this man has done. He's done a whole lot. So there is a glimmer of hope here. There is a small glimmer of hope of some people coming to Christ. But for all the glimmers of hope in this section and throughout the rest of the gospel and throughout the rest of the Bible, the common theme we see is that it always uh, the, the glimmers of hope come from a remnant. It is always the majority who are turning away. The path that leads to destruction is wide. Many will find it. The way to life is narrow and few will find it. So for all of the glimmers of hope, the main emphasis here that is setting ourselves up for this uh, bold statement of Jesus in verse 37, the main emphasis is really the dullness and blindness of the Jews who cannot see that their long-awaited Messiah is right here before their eyes. As they are celebrating this festival, the whole goal of the festival is indeed right in front of them and they cannot see so in verses 32 to 36, we have this final bit of conversation between Jesus and the Jews, where the Pharisees and the chief priests send officers to arrest him. Jesus says in verse 33, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. This is where we see the language shifting. I mentioned this last week that the language begins to shift where Jesus has been talking about coming and John, uh, the gospel writer, records um, the, the story of Jesus coming and the language is very much he has come down from heaven to earth. Now we're seeing this shift where the language starts to move towards Jesus going. He's going away. Jesus must ultimately go because to go away is to fully conquer death. To go away is to be glorified as he is seated back at the right hand of the Father. To go away is to accomplish his work of redemption. And this must happen, as we will see in verse 39, for the Spirit to then be poured out upon all flesh as was promised and to dwell within God's people as had been promised and foretold. So Jesus must go away. That's one aspect. I think a second aspect is that Jesus uses this language of going away to reinforce this barrier. There is a barrier that the Jews and all unbelievers must come before and many are unwilling to go through. So Jesus says, you will seek me and you will not find me where I am going. You cannot come. Now, in chapter eight, Jesus says this same thing, but he says it more clearly and more boldly in chapter eight, 21, where he says, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. This is talking about people who are going to die in their sin because they are unwilling to come to Christ as the chosen Messiah. They are unwilling to come to him as the bread from heaven as true drink, they are unwilling to come to him on his terms and therefore they stumble against this barrier. So Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot come. We know from other passages that Jesus does have a desire for his people to be with him. Think of his high priestly prayer in John 17. Jesus specifically prays 
Father, my desire is that they will be with me where I am so that they can see the glory that we have. That's my desire for all of those who believe in me to be with me where I am so that they can see the glory that we have together because you love me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus does have a desire for people to be with him, but he's saying to these Jews, you will not be with me. You've hit this stumbling block. There is a barrier here that you are unwilling to go through. To be with Jesus in glory requires coming to him as the absolute treasure of life, coming to him as the bread from heaven. And the prideful Jews have demonstrated that they are unwilling to come to Jesus by this means. And all of this is setting the scene for, chap- uh, for verses 37 and 39, which we'll spend our time on today. This is the climax of the chapter, I, I think, a wonderful statement where it is the last and great day of the feast. And Jesus then uh, takes a prominent place. He stands up. He cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, let's get a bit of background on the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles to just help us see this. It's a a wonderful thing that the Gospel of John, I mean, the Bible as a whole, but especially the Gospel of John, there are just so many layers and layers. And as we understand all of the background to this, it's like going from reading or it's like going from seeing a, a, um, a movie in black and white to all of a sudden seeing it in color. It's like this another layer of seeing all of the beautiful realities of Christ our Savior, but with all of this color and all of this definition and amplification. So we're going to try to see that as we understand the background to the Feast of Booth. This was a a week-long feast. It went for seven days. There was an eighth day attached on where they would have another Sabbath as part of it. And it was primarily to remember the time in the wilderness where the people dwelt in booths or tents, hence the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, when the people were freed from Egypt and they dwelt in the wilderness, they dwelt in tents or booths for that time. It was a time of remembrance that God had saved them out of Egypt and that they had dwelt in the wilderness. And as a result of their own stubbornness and rebellion, they lived in the wilderness for many, many years. But even then, God provided for them. He provided bread from heaven, and he provided water from the rock. This was the last festival of the Jewish religious calendar. By this stage, it had also taken on aspects of celebrating the ingathering of the harvest of grapes and olives, and this was part of the celebration. It was one of three feasts. There were seven main feasts in the Jewish religious calendar, and it was one of three where every male, which effectively meant every person attached to a male, had to come down to the place where God chose his name to dwell and celebrate there. And what was commonplace at this festival, and here's where we see a beautiful background to it, what was commonplace at the, at the festival of booths or the feast of booths was this water drawing ceremony. Now, we don't have this in scripture, but we have a wealth of resources that talk about this, one of which is the Mishnah, you may have heard of before. It's like the Jewish commentary, effectively. It's one of their sacred texts, but it's basically like a commentary on the Old Testament. And we have in the Mishnah, uh, stories of this water drawing ceremony that had become commonplace uh, from most people estimate at least 200 years before Christ came. Certainly by the first century, there are commentaries that talk about 
about this water drawing ceremony that would happen at the Feast of Booths. And what would happen is that every morning of the feast, the high priest would lead a procession down to the pool of Siloam and they would draw water out of the pool of Siloam and they would take it back to the temple and with wine and in the background there would be trumpets blowing, they would be singing the Hallel which is Psalms uh, 113 to 118, so there would be all this singing and celebrating, and then the water would be poured out before the presence of the Lord at the temple. And there was a lot of background to this. The water pouring out was a reminder of the time in the wilderness where the people complained and God provided water from the rock. They complained, and in Exodus 17, we read that uh, God tells Moses to strike the rock And we know later on the rock is symbolic of Christ. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, um, that the rock actually then pours out water to satisfy the thirst of the people. That's one aspect of it. So it's reminiscent of God providing water in the wilderness as this water is being poured out before the temple of the Lord. But also the pouring out of water was very connected with the promised pouring out of God's spirit. It was connected to this uh, future messianic age where God's spirit would be poured out upon all people. So there are passages like Isaiah 12, 3, which was uh, often used at the water drawing ceremony where Isaiah 12, 3 says, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. This is a future hope of God's people. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Or we think of passages like Joel, Joel chapter 2, most people know it because at the end of Joel chapter 2, it's this uh, language of God pouring out His Spirit upon all flesh, that in the last days, God would pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. And Peter talks about that in Acts 2. Right before that, in Joel, still keeping in the context of Joel 2, from the passage that Peter uses, it talks about abundant rain being poured out. It talks about their threshing floors being full with a wonderful harvest, which you can only get because rain is being poured out. So there is this connection with God providing an abundance of water, an abundance of rain, and then this connection with the Spirit being poured out upon all flesh. So the outpouring of water is connected with the outpouring of the Spirit. We've seen this already in John chapter 3, where Jesus talks about how you must be born again. How does he describe it? He says you must be born of water and the Spirit. Water and the Spirit go together to describe this new age, this new messianic period, this messianic age for God's people. So the key thing is that as this water is being poured out, there is a a, a messianic anticipation. They are longing for the Messiah to come. That's their hope. They're longing for the Messiah to come to bring renewal and restoration to the people of Israel. And on the last day of the feast, what would happen is this water drawing ceremony would happen seven times. Just like the people had to walk around uh, the walls of Jericho seven times, seven as a picture of completion and perfection. And so this water drawing ceremony would happen on the last day seven times. And in the midst of all of this messianic anticipation, all of these uh, hopes that the people have 
for God's promised spirit to bring about the new age. Jesus then cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. As the, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. So there is a whole lot of background to this. And some people talk about whether this happened on the seventh day or the eighth day. It really doesn't matter. We can see the symbolism on the seventh day. Imagine the, the seven days of this water drawing ceremony with all of these hopes. And then on the seventh day, it happens seven times. Then finally, Jesus stands up and says, by the way, if you want water, come to me and drink. Or you can imagine if it was on the eighth day, the people would celebrate year after year and there would be sort of a, a, a bit of an anti-climax actually because they would be celebrating and then they would realize, well, nothing's really happening. We're just going to pack everything up now and we'll have to do it again next year. As everything's packed up, they have an eighth day, a solemn day of rest. And then you can imagine Jesus then even saying then, if you want true drink, if anyone thirsts, come to me. We are, of course, reminded of God's words in Isaiah 55, where in verse 1, through the prophet Isaiah, he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come by and eat. It is an invitation. It's a call to those who realize their soul's deep thirst for salvation. And think about it from the perspective of the Jews. They would celebrate this feast every year, year after year. And what would happen? It would just be a temporary rejoicing. The reality would hit that, well, the promised age hasn't come. We're still in uh, bondage. We're still under the oppression of uh, the Persians, the, the Greeks. We're now under the Romans. We're not being set free. There would be these hopes, but it would be a bit anticlimactic because it was a temporary rejoicing and Jesus comes in and what he is offering here is not something temporary. What he is offering here is something permanent, something eternal. Come to me and drink because I have eternal life to give. He is offering a drink that is completely and totally able to satisfy the soul's longing for salvation. The way he describes it to the Samaritan woman we went through in chapter four is that whoever comes and drinks from him, this person will never go thirsty again. This is the ultimate thirst quenching drink. This is the satisfaction for our deepest longings within our soul. It's a very clear way of Jesus rising on the, the last and great day of the feast and saying, this whole feast is pointing to me. So come to me. I'm here. Come to me as the Messiah. Come to me as the one who can provide true drink. I mean, they've just been remembering God's provision in the wilderness of, of uh, providing manna, providing bread in the wilderness and now food. Isn't it interesting that we've just went through John 6, which is all about Jesus being the bread from heaven. Now he says, I'm also the drink. Just as God provided bread from heaven in the wilderness for you and then gushing water, I'm here. I'm the true bread. I'm the true drink. Jesus is the whole goal of the feast of tabernacles. So the call is to come to him, come to him and drink of this soul quenching living water. And as we have seen in uh, elsewhere in uh, John, think of John 6:35, coming to him is synonymous with believing in him. Coming to Jesus, the call to come to him is the call to believe in him. 
The call to believe in him is the call to come to him as the bread from heaven, as true, satisfying drink. So Jesus says here in verse 38, the one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, there's some debate that I'm not going to get into about um, how to actually translate this passage. I'm just going to leave that for probably another conversation afterwards because uh, it's a long, long, uh, there's been a lot of trees killed, so to speak, over uh, how to actually translate this. Whose heart is it referring to? Is it referring to Jesus's heart? Is it referring to the believer's heart? We'll just make some assumptions, but I would love to continue the conversation about this. So in verse 38, the one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, I believe this is referring to the believer's heart. Out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. And I'll explain that in a moment. This statement is both uh, simple and complex. I mean, think about the simplicity of what Jesus is saying. In, in, his, in its basic meaning, Jesus is saying, everyone who wants true life, everyone who wants salvation must come to me. There's no other option. There's no other one who can provide it. That's the simple, undeniable claim that Jesus is making. There's no other pathway to this. It's not like you can go up the mountain a different way and get to me. No, no, no. I'm at the base of the mountain. I'm at the top. I'm everywhere. It's undeniable. You must come to me. That's the simple thing. The complexities are that there are layers and layers and then layers of the layers to this statement that Jesus is saying, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Because it says here, as the scripture has said, now there is no scripture that exactly says this. It seems like Jesus is just referring to the whole host of scriptures. There's a whole lot of scriptures that allude to this. There's no scripture that we can find that exactly says this. I don't think that's a problem for us because I think Jesus is talking about scripture as a whole and the whole thrust of scripture being that living waters is this mark of restoration and renewal and it will come by God's promised spirit being poured out upon all flesh and dwelling within the hearts of believers. So there are masses of scriptures that talk about this. Just a few uh, to, to help get some background. Zechariah 14, 8. It's interesting in Zechariah 14, it actually talks about celebrating the Feast of Booths in, this, uh, in these last periods in sort of a messianic time. And in Zechariah 14, 8, it describes the day of the Lord by saying living waters will flow from Jerusalem. Ezekiel 47, we remember in Ezekiel 40 to 48, there is this uh, restored and renewed temple. And Ezekiel 47 gives this temple vision and it describes water flowing out from the temple. And wherever the water flows, life comes. Jeremiah 2, in fact, throughout Jeremiah, multiple times, Yahweh himself refers to himself as the source of living water as the fountain of living water. So Jeremiah 2.13 says this. My, he says, my people have forsaken me as the source of living waters. I'm the source of living waters. So ultimately, living waters is a picture of life and restoration that comes about by the Spirit's renewing work where we are united to the source of living water. 
It is about life and restoration that only comes as we are united to the source of life and restoration, which is God himself. The one who believes in Jesus as the Christ necessarily comes to this source of life. Anyone who believes in Jesus as the Christ comes to this source of living waters, this source of life. And because they have come to the source of life that their soul was made for, they are now permanently connected to the source of life so much so that it flows out of them like a spring. It flows out of them, not because they have life in and of themselves, but because such is the union that has happened by the work of Christ, that there is a spring within them. This was God's promise. Think about Isaiah 58, verse 11. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. This is God talking about his people, Israel, talking about this mark of restoration. And what is the mark of restoration? They will be like a well-watered garden in a dry and barren place. They will be like a well-watered garden and a spring of water will be within them. So the one who believes in Christ and drinks this drink is now connected to this endless spring of life and nourishment. They are a well-watered garden amidst a dry and barren land. That is why I believe out of his heart is referring to the one who believes. A similar language is in John chapter 4, where Jesus talks, says this to the Samaritan woman and says that actually it will well up in him. A spring of water will well up in him. That is the one who drinks of this drink. So the spring of living waters is now located within the heart of the one who believes, not because they have created a spring within themselves, not because they have life in and of themselves, not because they can give the spirit to anyone, but it is located within the heart of the believer because of their union with Christ, who is the spring, because of this intimacy that has come about, such as the intimacy and deep connection with Christ and the believer, that the spring of living water actually becomes as though it is within the believer. It finds its home within the believer because we have been united. There is this beautiful union with the source of living water that happens. And by this, the one who believes in Christ has the ultimate source of sustainability. Our world likes to talk a whole lot about sustainability. The ultimate source of sustainability for the whole human race is to come to Christ. That's the sustainability. And see, here's the thing. Those who come to Christ and drink, they are not coming to Jesus for a drink that satisfies for a bit. And then they have to go off and they have to drink again. Sure, there is this language of ongoing drinking, just like there is this language of ongoing feasting. But the point here is of a permanent thirst-quenching drink. They are coming to a spring. They are coming to a never-ending source of satisfaction. So it's not like they have to go anywhere. It's the difference between filling up a watering can and then having to go back, or the difference between having a hose that is permanently connected. That is the case for those who have come to Christ. They come to a source, a never-ending fountain of living water, a never-ending fountain of satisfaction. You remember the, the phrase, if you give a man a fish, he will eat for a day. If you teach a man to fish, he will eat for a lifetime. 
Well, it's similar to if you come to Jesus with superficial judgments, if you come to Jesus as a helpful resource or as a means to an end, like we've seen, then you might get by common grace some helpful tips for a day or two. But it will not be sustainable. Come to Jesus as the source and fountainhead of life and existence, and you will drink and eat from that forever. You will live from that forever. This is the equivalent of teaching a man to fish. It is for us to come to Jesus as the source of all life and existence, as the source of living waters, and there is sustainability. There is satisfaction for our hearts. Now, let me unpack verse 39 briefly before we just draw some very quick applications. In verse 39, uh, John, the gospel writer, is now writing and he says, Now this Jesus said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the Spirit could only be given after Jesus was glorified because the indwelling spirit, which I believe this is talking about, is the mark of the new age that had been promised in scripture. The spirit has always been active. The spirit has always been active in regeneration. The Old Testament saints were born again in the sense of being born from above. The difference is the spirit and the mark of the new covenant is actually that the spirit dwells within believers, finds its home within believers. The spirit is poured out upon all flesh and put within God's people to cause them to walk in his ways, to be obedient to him. And the prerequisite for this new age to come was that the Messiah must fully accomplish his work of atonement, which includes his death, resurrection and ascension. The whole package must happen for that new age to begin. The new stage of God's redemptive plan, which is to send his spirit to dwell within his children. So this is the beautiful, simple progression of God's redemptive plan. The father sends the son. The father sends the son to accomplish his work of redemption. The son accomplishes his work of redemption in his death, resurrection and ascension. He ascends to the father and then the father and son together send the spirit to dwell within God's people to continue his work of redemption. That is the progression that happens. The father sends the son, the son accomplishes his work, ascends to the father, the father and the son together, send the spirit to dwell within his people, to be with us always, continuing this work of redemption. And the beautiful thing about this is because Jesus has been glorified before the spirit is given, because Jesus has been glorified before the Spirit is given, this is what Paul says in Romans 8, we know that the Spirit who dwells within us is the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. The Spirit who raised Christ from the dead now dwells within us and He will give life to our mortal bodies. That is the beautiful thing. The Spirit of the glorified and risen Christ dwells within us to give life within us just like a spring of water creates life even in barren places, even in the the most barren of deserts if there is a spring of water an oasis will form nourishment will be there 
And in the most barren of life's circumstances, for those of us who have come and have drunk from Christ, for those of us who have the indwelling spirit, they are connected to an endless spring of water. They are connected to the spirit who sustains us. The spirit gives life to us as he testifies within us that we are children of God. The spirit gives life to us as he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This is how sustainability happens. This is how life comes because the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within us and continues to give life to our mortal bodies. The spirit guides us into all truth, teaches us all things. So to summarize, living waters flowing from the heart of the believer is a picture of the new life and restoration that was always hoped for that comes about by the Spirit's renewing work within us where we are united to the source of life. We are united to the source of living waters. Now, I want to give three brief applications for us. The first two are to do with us individually as followers of Christ. The third is to do collectively with us as a church. The first application that we get from this passage, drinking from Christ is a drink for desperate beggars. Drinking from Christ is a drink for desperate beggars. We see this. What is, what is Jesus calling us to? It's not a drink that you might get as a supplement to your existing diet of drinks. It's not a drink that is nice to enjoy, like some sort of mocktail or something. Think of your nice drink that is nice to enjoy, but you're not gonna die if you don't have it. That's not the drink that Jesus is talking about. This is a drink when you are desperate for hydration and there is one source of hydration for you. This is a drink for desperate beggars in a barren land with no other source of drink. It's the drink that David spoke of in Psalm 63 when he said, Oh God, earnestly do I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have searched for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. He says, because your loving kindness is better than life. This is the drink. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. There's no other source of water. You are the source. That is the drink. The drink that Jesus is offering here is a drink for malnourished and depleted souls that are beyond some fancy electrolyte drink that's going to boost your uh, energy. The drink that Jesus is offering here is where you need to be hooked up to an eternal IV drip that will never be removed from you, that will be your source of hydration for the rest of your life. That is what Jesus is offering here. It is a drink for desperate beggars. Secondly, drinking from Christ requires the complete abandonment of self-sufficiency. God spoke to his people in Jeremiah 2, in verse 13, he says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. He says, 
there's a deadly self-sufficiency amongst my people. They have forsaken me as the fountain of living waters. I'm the source of life. I'm the source of everything. They have forsaken me. What have they done? They've tried to carve out these cisterns to hold water, but they're broken. They fill them and things just seep through. Self-sufficiency is deadly. They can't hold any water. And we can fall into the same trap. This deadly, toxic level of self-sufficiency that does not come to Christ as the source of our sufficiency and satisfaction. We see this in the passage. Jesus is not coming, offering a special drink that you can take or leave, or even a drink that's going to be super helpful. He's not a helpful resource. You're coming to him not as a means to an end. You're coming to him as the end, as the source of life, as the source of satisfaction. So a helpful thing for us to think about as we think about self-sufficiency, if someone was to look at your life, so if someone was to observe your life, let's say not in a creepy way, but they were to be around you 24 hours a day, seven days a week to observe everything that you do, things that you think about, would they see something fundamentally different about where your satisfaction and nourishment seems to come from? Would they look at your life, look at the things you do, the things you desire, the things you say, and would they see something fundamentally different about where your satisfaction and nourishment comes from? Or would they look at your life and say, well, superficially, they look a bit different. They do some Christian things on the weekend but fundamentally, they're coming to the same source as I am, me in the world. They're still looking for satisfaction in a good job. They're still looking for satisfaction from a good, healthy family life. They're still looking for satisfaction from nice experiences, from a sense of community. That seems to me where they're getting their satisfaction from. We must have a fundamentally different source of satisfaction than the world. We must have a Christ sufficiency than a self-sufficiency. It must seem evident to others that there is a satisfaction, our sufficiency, our desires wholly directed toward Christ. It oozes out of us like the psalmist, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh longs for you. So is your life characterized by a Christ sufficiency or would it rather be a self-sufficiency with a bit of Jesus added on to help your life? That's the two individual applications. Lastly, to the church as a whole. We must demonstrate that our highest joy and satisfaction is in Christ. As we think about how we live our lives together in community as the church, we must demonstrate that our highest joy and satisfaction is in Christ. And I believe there have been and will continue to be disastrous consequences because of the modern consumer-driven, entertainment-driven approach to church. And I speak about this a lot. And um, to those who would say you speak about it too much, I'll stop talking about it when it stops becoming a problem. Uh, it's a huge problem. It's something unavoidable. This consumer-driven approach to church, which makes the church a service provider, to our natural needs for entertainment and community. So the Sunday service becomes a, an event with captivating content. Even the marketing through the week is designed to whet people's appetite for the event. 
The music becomes like any other secular use of music, which we know is very easily to manipulate emotions. And the community becomes driven by meeting people's natural needs for companionship through common interests like similar hobbies and life stages. It's all very self-centered and based upon appealing to people's natural consumer desires. And all of this clouds our ability to see that our highest joy and satisfaction is in Christ. Why does it cloud our ability to see that? Because we're creating this environment where we manufacture temporary joy and satisfaction, just like everyone else does in the world. Nothing supernatural needs to happen to you to be drawn to a community where your natural desires are being met where there's barista-made coffee for everyone and and, uh, fancy music and all of these things that appeal to our natural desires, that we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But the reality is it clouds our ability to see that Christ is our highest joy and satisfaction. It isn't clear to anyone in a community like that that Christ is all satisfying because there are too many natural things that look satisfying and appealing. You will notice that throughout John's gospel, Jesus is very intentional to leave barriers where they are so that those who are truly born again would come. He does this to the people coming, from, coming to him from, for, for bread. And Jesus actually enforces, he reinforces the barrier and questions their motives in coming to him. And likewise, as we think about our church, we must create an environment where it is clear that the most satisfying and captivating reality of our lives is the risen and glorified Christ. That is what we must be about. And therefore we will reject any attempts to manufacture joy and satisfaction. We don't need to. The Holy Spirit is who lifts our eyes to the risen and glorified Christ so that he is the most satisfying and glorifying reality in our lives. We don't need a banging sound system for that. So to conclude and wrap this up, let me read Psalm 36 verses 7 to 9. How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life and in your light do we see Light. Listen to this. This is what was anticipated. This was what was longed for. This experience of feasting on the abundance of God's house, drinking from the river of his delights, because in him is the fountain of life. And this is what God has done in Christ. He has opened the door for this kind of intimacy and satisfaction with Christ. This is what Jesus is doing as he is saying, Come to me, all you who thirst. Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Come and eat from me. Come and feast on the abundance of my house. Come and drink from the river of my delights. Jesus opens the door for this level of intimacy, this level of satisfaction as he comes and he says, anyone who is thirsty, come to me. Drink from me. Your soul will find satisfaction. Your heart will be captivated. You will be like a well-watered garden. A spring of living water will flow out of you because you are connected to me, the source of living water. Let's pray and uh, prepare our hearts to give thanks by taking of the Lord's Supper.
Father, we thank you for this. We thank you for this beautiful reality. We thank you for Christ as our absolute treasure. As we think about this passage and the all-satisfying nature of Christ, we desire, like Paul, to be able to say that everything else in this world that we may have once considered as valuable, we, we consider as garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. You are satisfying. You are captivating. You are worthy of every ounce of our devotion and attention. So make this a reality in our lives. We pray by your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.